0: Hey, good morning, and Happy Independence Day! Do you remember Lost? Did y'all watch that great TV show? Like I watched Lost, the series, uh, for six seasons, 121 episodes, and I'm still not sure what it was about. Like, am I the only one? I don't. I don't think I'm alone in that. In fact, I, I, it seems to be a prominent view on the internet of people who would consider themselves to be fans of Lost and I am a fan of Lost. It was a great TV series. Like it didn't jump the shark or go off the rails. It, it just seems like they didn't know how to land the plane, which is ironic because the plane crashed on that beach, right? On that island. It's like the creator of the story like started writing something and didn't know how to end it. Like I've watched so many movies and read numerous books where that's the same problem. Like it just ends up being so dissatisfying because the writers kind of lose their way along the way and they just don't know how to bring things to a satisfying conclusion. Hear this, church. That is not the case with the writer, with the creator of our story before a word was written on the page right before anything had happened before creation was formed behold he knew it all from beginning to ending our sovereign god god has planned our steps and knows where our story is going and is like paving the way for us i mean there was never a time ever where he was surprised by our behavior. I mean, there was never a time where he was caught off guard by the sin of his people or the sin of Israel. There was never a time where God had to scramble to come up with a solution to a problem that we had created. There was never a time where he struggled to make the best out of a bad situation. Like understand this, that Bible that you hold in your laps, that book that we read, those 66 books within that book, there are no plot holes in the story of God. Like the story that He has written, He always knew how He would bring it to an end. And the good news is for us, like on a very personal level, the best news is that for those of us who love God, and are called according to His purpose according to Romans chapter 8 God is able to take our darkest moments like the time of your greatest failure or your deepest despair and bring hope and meaning and purpose out of them for our good and for His glory you see contrary to what you may have been watching on CNN or Fox News, your story is not a tragedy. Our story is not a tragedy. It's a grand adventure that God is writing. Like the events of the past year are not the final chapter. They are simply really the... Dark before the dawn, the storm before the calm. Like God tells his people in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 29, when they're on the edge of utter destruction, they're being carried out, dragged into captivity. He tells them in verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Like the last word for Israel is not exile. Like God is promising to them as they go into captivity. Listen, this judgment has an expiration date. It has a time span that I have set. Like later you will read in the book of Daniel that Daniel reads the prophecy of Jeremiah and says, God, 70 years is almost up Take us home. Like, keep your promise. And in the context of this promise, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. (laughs) You see, this favorite of all verses, right? This is the kind of verse that you read on a t-shirt, it's painted on a sign and posted in your house. Like I've seen people put this on Facebook. You probably posted this promise on Instagram. This promise is amazing, yet this promise comes really with a bit of an edge. The edge is this, when 70 years are completed. Like God makes this incredible promise to Israel, I know the plans I have for you. They're for your welfare. They're for your good. They're not for evil. I have a future and a hope for you in 70 years. I mean, it's interesting to me that for all of us in this room, that's pretty close to the average lifespan. So it's like God is saying, listen, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare, plans for your good, not for your harm, not for evil. I want to give you a future and a hope. But hey, you know, these next 70 years, they're going to be a little bit rough. So buckle up. Understand your life is not a tragedy. Your life is an adventure. So claim this promise. Christians claim this promise. But remember the context. In fact, the passage we're going to look at this morning, you can turn to Jeremiah 31. The passage we're going to look at from Jeremiah 31 beginning in verse 31 actually unpacks the promise that God makes to Israel in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, Like the future and the hope that God is speaking of, that God has in store for them, is something that is new, something that is better, and something that is permanent. God says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. By the way, this is the only time in all of the Old Testament where the phrase new covenant is used. Like God is not being flippant. He's not being careless with his words. He knows exactly what he is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm going to make a new covenant that's not like the old covenant that I made at the time of the Exodus, that Mosaic covenant, that old covenant. And so you got to wonder, like, what's wrong with the old covenant? Like, why do we need a new covenant? What's wrong with the old covenant? Well, the answer is this. We are. Israel was. That's what was wrong with the Old Covenant. Jeremiah does not condemn the Old Covenant. He condemns Israel for breaking the Old Covenant. Like there was one major problem with the Old Covenant. Us. Like Israel. Sin was the problem. The Old Covenant was broken even before it was ratified. Remember the story? Like God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses... And before the people can say, we're all in, they're making a golden calf and sacrifice doing it, sacrificing to it. They're getting drunk and sleeping around. They're doing all kinds of crazy stuff before the Old Covenant was even ratified. And do you see the wording here? God refers to Himself as the husband of Israel, which means that He considers the Old Covenant sort of like a marriage contract. And God is saying, listen, I was your husband, and you cheated on me on our wedding night. Like we couldn't even make it to the honeymoon. You were already unfaithful to me. In fact, that's the language you read throughout the book of Jeremiah. Like God puts it this way. It says, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, this is Jeremiah three six. have you seen what she did, the faithless one? Israel, have you seen how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? I mean, that is pretty graphic language. See, God is saying, listen, my covenant is not the problem. You are. Israel is. Sin is. And like any husband, God takes adultery personally he takes cheating very personally wouldn't you like husbands if you found out that this week your wife had a date with a guy that was not you or one of your sons or her father wives if you found out that your husband was planning a trip a couple's kind of getaway and you weren't part of that couple but it was someone else wouldn't you take that personally Like God takes it personally and yet the bride, Israel, doesn't even seem to care. Has no effect on them. The idea that they're committing adultery, spiritual adultery against God, doesn't even seem to impact them. In Jeremiah 8, 12, God asks this question. Were they ashamed? Like was Israel ashamed when they committed this abomination, this spiritual adultery? And he answers himself, no, they weren't, they weren't ashamed. They weren't at all ashamed. In fact, they didn't even know how to blush. Like Israel had hardened their heart against God so long and for so, so many, uh, so often and for so long that now they didn't even like recognize right from wrong. Like they didn't even know how to blush. They had built up the callous on their hearts so long that they could do this abomination and have no kind of emotional effect, no shame, no guilt. Like that's where Israel was, and yet, instead of forsaking her, like instead of forsaking his bride, instead of divorcing her and walking away from for good, God makes this stunning statement. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. Like the word there literally is, I will cut a new covenant. This isn't simply a second chance. They've had countless chances. This isn't like the husband trying to make the best of a terrible situation, kind of our last-ditch effort to save our marriage. We're going to go away on a couple's retreat. We're going to find this new counselor. We're going to work it out. Like, let's look at some photo albums and remember how good it used to be. No. This is not God giving them a second chance. This is the answer to the problem that has been plaguing plaguing mankind since the Garden of Eden. Verse 33, he explains, for this is the covenant that I will cut, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. It's no longer just some external list of rules, no longer just tablets of stone etched by the finger of God. No, I am going to write my law upon your very hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. You know, at this point, Like, this is what's going on in the nation of Israel. As they go into exile, as they're facing the judgment of God, there is still a remnant, a believing remnant of Israel. Like, those who have remained faithful. And they're going to their brother Israelites, and they're saying, Know the Lord. Like, remember God. Be faithful. Repent of your sins. And he is saying, listen, there's going to come a day where that'll be unnecessary because everyone called by my name will know me personally and I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever." Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Guys, the new covenant that God offers is way better than the old covenant. First of all, because it's personal. It's personal. Like the new covenant fully and finally, solves the problem of our unfaithfulness. Like that phrase in the book of Jeremiah repeated over and over, that phrase, stubbornness of heart. Like only used ten times in the entire Old Testament, eight of those appearing in the book of Jeremiah because that's exactly what's going on here. Like God has repeatedly offered them like a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance, and they have hardened their hearts against God. They've become so stubborn, but the new covenant solves solves that problem fully and finally. It solves the problem of our unfaithfulness, and it does it by bringing the law from the outside to the inside. We're going to talk about that next week in the prophecy of Ezekiel of a a new heart, a heart of flesh that God is going to offer us under the new covenant. But God solves the problem of our unfaithfulness by giving us a new law that is now within our heart. No longer is it simply a list of rules, but it's something deep within us, a drive, a determination, a desire that God has given us. And so the new covenant solves the problem of our unfaithfulness by doing that. And it does it by creating a new covenant community. See, no longer is uh, like the people of God or the people of God simply an ethnic gathering of people who claim a name because of a birthright and a heritage. Like it's almost like they're passive in their connection to Yahweh. No, that is gone God now creates a new covenant community, not that people are born into, but that people are born again into. This new covenant community where people on their own terms by God, before God just say, okay, you know what? I know this is true. This is what I want, and I yield to you my life. And so God finally solves the problem of our unfaithfulness By forgiving and forgetting all of our sin. Does that mean God has a bad memory? No, God's never truly forgotten anything, but He chooses not to remember our sin against us. The new covenant is better than the old covenant because it's personal and because it's permanent. Like as you read this promise of the old covenant, most of the words in the covenant are reserved to explain to us that this is full and this is final. This is God's ultimate solution. There's not going to be a new, new covenant. This is it. And it is permanent. Like how sure is this covenant? Well, it's, a re- it's as reliable as the fixed laws of nature according to Yahweh. It's as sure as the sun and the moon and the stars. Like this covenant, this new covenant is as likely to fail as the universe is to grind to a sudden halt. Like it can no more be revoked than one can measure out the heavens or plumb the foundations of the earth. This new covenant will not end. It will never fade away. You can bet your life on it. And some of you have. You can bet your eternity eternity on it. And many of you have. Like you know that God is a God who makes and keeps promises. And so you're betting everything you have on the promise of God. Like within the context of this new covenant that God is making in Jeremiah 32, God says this. He says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. And then he asks this question is anything too hard for me? Like once again in the context of this radical promise made by God of a new covenant, of a new heart, of complete forgiveness, of restored fortunes for Israel, God says, is anything too hard for me? Is there anything impossible for me? Is there anything God cannot do? Well, yeah, I mean, I can think of a couple things. I mean, a couple things that clearly Scripture says God cannot do. The first one is this God cannot lie. I mean, Scripture makes it clear over and over that God is not a man that he should lie. Like, God cannot lie. He is incapable of lying. When he speaks the truth, it's like he's breathing. That is a reflection, the expiration of who He is. God cannot, it's impossible for God to lie. And the second is this, God cannot change. Like God is immutable. Like Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God cannot, will not, can never change. And so you put those two things together, and if you have a God who doesn't lie, and a God who cannot change, that means that things that God has said in the past are as sure today as they were when He first said them. That's why He says to the uh, believers during the time of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Like I'm not going to blot you out and start with a new group. I'm not going to pick another nation. I have chosen you and because I do not change, you will not be consumed. See, the new covenant is better because it's personal, because it's permanent. And mostly because it's actually a person. Guys, hear this. Fast forward about 600 years from this event. 600 years later, after God has promised that He's going to bring a new covenant, Israel has, in a sense, been restored to the land. Now as a vassal nation, Jerusalem and the temple have been rebuilt. It's the week of the Passover. And a rabbi named Jesus is in an upper room with His disciples. And at the end of the meal, He reminds them of this promise. This very promise made 600 years earlier, the only place it's mentioned in all of the Old Testament. And He shows His disciples just how far God will go to cut a covenant with His people. He says this. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood? Now, guys, once again, Jesus isn't being flippant. He's not being careless with his words. He knows exactly what he is saying. He is saying, Remember that time, 600 years in the past, where God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said he was going to do something grand and something new, something better and something permanent? This is my blood. The blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Like we know this passage so well, or at least we think we do, that we miss the scandal of these words. Like we lose the shock value. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the new covenant. Like the new covenant is my blood. I have sealed this covenant In my own blood. This is radical language. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the new and better promise. In fact, that's the case that the writer of Hebrews makes through the entire book of Hebrews, but especially in Hebrews chapter 8, where he quotes the entire promise of a new covenant from Jeremiah 31. It's the longest quotation of an Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. It begins this way in Hebrews 8.1. The point of what we are saying is this. Okay, we've been building this up for seven chapters. Like what we're trying to get across, what we want you to grasp, what we want you to understand is this. Christ has obtained a ministry as our high priest that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, the one with Moses, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he, God himself, finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. So the writer of Hebrews is telling his audience, many of who, who are Jewish Christians, he's saying, listen, that old covenant, that old way of life, if it was perfect, God would not have sent His Son. Like if all you needed was the law, if all you needed was rules, if all you needed was to repent and turn over a new leaf, then God would not have had to bring a new and better covenant. And then after he quotes the entire covenant, he says this, in speaking of a new covenant, he, God, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. See, the new covenant ushers in something new and better. Like Jesus is the new and better covenant. Jesus is the new and better promise. Jesus is the new and better temple that, that ends all temples Like no longer is there a need for you to travel the land to go to one location so that you can connect with God. Jesus himself is the new and better temple. He's the new and better Sabbath to end all Sabbath rest. He's the new and better priest to end all priests. He's the new and better king to end all kings. And he's the new and better and final sacrifice to end all sacrifices like that's repeated over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7 he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself Hebrews 9, he says, He, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having attained eternal redemption. He goes on to say, He has appeared, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And then in Hebrews 10, it says, He has been made holy through the sacrifice of the body. We have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How many times? Once. Like up to this time, the priest would have to go to the temple and first offer sacrifice for his own sins. Jesus didn't have to do that because he was without sin. And then the priest would return to the temple day after day, week after week, day of atonement after day of atonement, making the same sacrifice. But Jesus comes and once and for all makes the final and better sacrifice. By one sacrifice, we read in Hebrews 10, 14, Jesus has been made perfect forever those who are being made perfect holy. The new covenant is better than the old because it's actually a person. Jesus is the new covenant. What the old covenant could never do, the new covenant has done. What the old covenant could never do, God did by sending his son as the substitute for sin once and for all. The old covenant, the law, The best it could do is expose our sin. Tell us that we're broken in need of being fixed. But the new covenant covers our sin. Once and for all. See, religion says this. Religion says, live this way. Try harder. Do better. Get your act together. Do this. Live this way. And God will finally accept you. But the new covenant The new covenant says at infinite cost to himself through Jesus Christ, God accepts you. And now live for him. Hebrews 9.15 puts it this way. He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive The promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. All of the rules that you couldn't keep, Jesus has kept. All of the punishment that you deserve, Jesus has borne. And so, what this tells me is that God can bring his story and plans to bring his story, the one he has been in writing since eternity past god brings his story to a full and satisfying conclusion my question is you know that are you enjoying that are you living in like the assurance of that right now are you confident in that does that fill you with joy does that change how you live Like I think about it this way, I I just think about two brothers growing up in the same home, same mom and dad, and then one day dad comes in and tells the kids and explains to the whole family, guess what guys, this March at spring break, we are going to Disneyland. What? Yeah, we're going to go to Disneyland. It is going to be awesome. We're going to get a a park hopper pass. We're going to go to all four parks. It is going to be incredible. We're going to stay locally right there. We're going to eat and party and just have a blast together. I know it's November, but get ready, guys. It is going to be awesome. And one of those sons hears that. He hears the promise of his father that they're going to go to Disney World, and immediately he begins to fret. He goes online and he's like, man, Disney World is expensive. Do we have that much money? Like, are we just going to get in the debt? Are we making a bad decision? Oh, I don't know how this is going to work out. And it's in Florida? Oh my goodness. That is such a drive. How are we going to get there? We only have one week and to go to each park is going to take five days or so. So how, like, how is this even going to work? And as the days progress and they turn into weeks and they turn into months. He grows in his worry. He grows in his anxiety, his fretting. I know that dad said this, but how is it even possible? But then the second week of March rolls around and all the kids load into the family SUV and they head for Disneyland. And they get there and guess what? it's awesome. The weather's perfect. The food is amazing. Every ride is just so much fun. And this boy has a blast. Like it's the time of his life, the best week of his childhood. Now his brother back in November heard the same promise of his father. And instead of it turning his stomach inside out and causing him to begin to fret and worry, his thought was this. We're going to Disney World? Are you kidding me? This is going to be awesome. And he got on the internet too. But he started looking at what each park has to offer. And he's like, you can ride that, you can go here, you can eat that. Oh my goodness, it's going to be incredible. And the more he read, and the more he studied, and the more questions he asked, the more excited he was. And so... Days went into weeks and those weeks went into months and the second, the second week of March rolled around. He loaded in the SUV with the rest of the family and he went to Disney World and when he got there, it was even better than he thought it would be. It was the greatest week of his life. Both those boys had an awesome time at Disneyland, but the second boy started enjoying his time in November. So which one of those boys sounds like you? Church, you know the promises of God. You know the character of this God who makes promises that He cannot lie and He cannot change. Are you enjoying the promise of God or do you believe the lie that your life is a tragedy, not an adventure? See, God can bring His story To a satisfying conclusion, and he can bring your story, your personal story, to a full and satisfying conclusion. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Church, claim that promise today. But remember the context. Life's an adventure. It's not a comedy. Things are going to get hard, but God always keeps His promise. Let me just close with this story. My One of my best friends, a guy from my wedding and a guy I went to college with, his name's Tim Melton. He's a pastor and we used to be youth pastors living about an hour from each other when I lived in North Carolina and he lived in South Carolina. And When he was young in youth ministry, he went on his first mission trip with his youth group. Like They had planned for it for a long time. He had a kind of a ragtag youth ministry. A lot of the kids were brand new to the faith. Some of them weren't even Christians yet. He knew them through young life. He got them into the church and they went on this mission trip. They raised their money to go on it. And they were heading from South Carolina all the way to the northeast of the United States. And on the way there, the only thing Tim could think about was, oh man, we're $2,000 over budget. There's no way to make up that money. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like he was worried, am I going to lose my job? The elders are not going to be happy with this. They didn't know about the idea of a mission trip in the first place with these teenagers, but you know, he kind of pushed it out of his mind and he decided just to go and have a blast, and he did. It was an incredible mission trip. Like... People came to Christ. Some of the youth ministry itself came to Christ. And so they're leaving from the mission trip, having had a great time. He's thinking again about that $2,000. And then the kids on the bus start feeling a little ill. They look down and there's smoke coming into the bus from the exhaust. And the kids are kind of beginning to feel nauseated. They get the bus to pull over to the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Amish country. There's nothing around. All the kids and adults get off the bus and vomit in a ditch. And my friend Tim is thinking, oh man, what are we going to do? Like we're in the middle of nowhere. And so they're able to get the bus to limp to the only hotel in the area. And guys, it's a resort and it's amazing. Like the rooms are incredible, great pool, indoor and outdoor, great sauna and jacuzzi. It is plush and it is expensive. And so not knowing what else they could do, they're in the middle of nowhere. He uses his personal credit card and the church credit card, maxing out both. And the kids go to their room, they get past their nausea, they go to the pool. They're having a good time, but not Tim. Tim's on the phone to his wife Martha Joe, and he calls her and he says, "Martha Joe, I don't know what I'm gonna do. We're so this. I, I'm gonna. I mean, we're like six thousand dollars over budget now. I'm gonna get fired. What are we gonna do?" And he just starts crying. And as he's sobbing on the phone, Martha Joe says something that so stuns him that it changes. He says it changes the direction of his life really forever. As he's crying. Martha Jo just says, and she calls him by his last name, Melton. She says, Melton? Well, it's an adventure. And he said, at that moment, it was like the light of my heart came on. And I thought, <gasps> it's an adventure. Like my life is an adventure. Like, I thought it was a tragedy. Like, I thought my story ended here. I thought what was bad could only get worse. But now I realize that my story is an adventure. And like any great adventure, like, there's always this moment where you think the hero is down for the count. And then he's not. And so he stayed on the phone with Martha for a little bit longer. They prayed together. He dried his tears. And he got his swimming trunks on and he went to the pool and he had a blast for the next two days with these students enjoying the adventure that was their life until the new bus, which was better than the old bus because it lacked vomit, (laughs) pulled up. And the first thing the bus driver did was say, hey, just to let you know, the bus company is going to cover all the expense of the hotel, including meals and everything else. I'm certainly out of fear that they were going to get sued, I'm sure. <laughs> and then he gave him a certified check for the full amount of the bus rental. And Tim took the check and thought, we were 2000 over budget, and now we've made a couple thousand dollars on this mission trip. How is this even possible? And he rode back to South Carolina just having a blast along the way, but guess what? He got to enjoy that two days earlier when he remembered that his life was not a tragedy. It was an adventure. And church, your life is not a tragedy because it's linked to Jesus himself. You are hidden in Christ in God And your life is a grand adventure. And so buckle up because it's going to be awesome. And so every month we come to this table of communion and we come to this table to remind ourselves that the cost of that adventure was the life of Jesus. Like the cost of this new covenant was the blood of our Savior. Like that God sent His Son into the world and gave us a sign of the covenant so that every month when we gather and we pick up these elements, it's supposed to be a reminder, a way to kind of let the light of our heart come on for us to say, like the old covenant, what it could never do, God has done. Like the new covenant is better because it's based on better promises because it's based on a a great promiser who cannot change and cannot lie. And so I'm going to pray for us and as the next song plays, if you could come up and just get your elements of communion, take them back to the table and we'll take them together after this song. So if you are part of the new covenant community, If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, we want you to join us in communion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are incredible. You have the ability and the power as the maker, the creator of all things, the one who speaks everything into existence, the one who calls things that are not as though they are. Lord Jesus, you have that ability to call dead people and make them alive you have the ability to take all of our broken promises all of our failures all of our hurt all of our woundedness all of the brokenness of this world and work it together for your good for our good and for your glory we thank you for that lord jesus we pray in your name amen